Hello and welcome to Time Well Spent, a place where the most brilliant minds in the world take on the toughest questions in science, politics, technology, and much more. My guest today often appears under the heading, The Wisdom of Garrett Jones, and is one of the very best people to follow on Twitter for insight into public choice and macroeconomics. Garrett is the author of three excellent books, all of which address the biggest question in economics, why some nations are rich, while others are poor. Today, we will focus our discussion on his latest release, The Culture Transplant, how migrants make the economies they move to a lot like the ones they left. Garrett, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Cool. So a central claim of your book is that populations have deep roots, a cultural heritage that continues to meaningfully influence attitudes and behaviors long after migrants relocate. To make things concrete for the audience, what kinds of attitudes are we talking about here, and why are they so important for national prosperity? Well, the attitudes that have been best measured by economists would be attitudes toward trust, towards savings rates and frugality, and attitudes toward the proper role of government in life. Uh, those are three big areas where that have big economic implications, where economists know from theory and other research these traits matter a lot. And... They've been able to find, um, not just for the US, but for countries in Western Europe, for Australia, Canada, that um, for these traits, migrants of from the second through fourth generation seem to carry maybe half, maybe a little bit less than that of their attitudes from their old country to their new country. So Italian Americans are, in terms of attitudes, a lot like Italians in Italy. Um, German Americans are a lot like Germans in Germany. And um, this is economically important and it's underappreciated. It's been sitting in the academic journals for a long time. And I decided it was time to write a book that brings this, these well-documented facts to the masses. Gotcha. So um, a lot of times when I kind of tune into these debates, it seems like um, even people who are maybe a little bit skeptical of the open borders position, the, the thing that they emphasize is that well, it would be great to have lots of op uh, lots of immigration, really open borders, but you're going to have nativist backlash. And really, the problem is um, not so much the attitudes that the immigrants bring themselves, but it's it's the reaction to those attitudes. Maybe um, how much is that a part of the story, or, or are you kind of diverging from that and emphasizing, you know, really it's the cultural attitudes themselves that matter. Well, I'm a big believer that the uh, uh, nativist backlash is important and it's a huge negative. Um, and we can't ignore that. I wrote an essay about this for the uh, Independent Institute a few years ago. And um, so, you know, Donald Trump should be counted as one of the costs of a um, uh, migration of American migration policy, unfortunately. Um, we probably have to count Brexit as a cost of um, EU migration policy. Um, though. Um, indirect effects are still effects. This is something that economists are trained on. Um, you know, effects are not moral choices. They're not morality. They are effects that people should be taking account of when they're deciding uh, what policy path to go down. But that's not the whole story. Um, I do think, you know, ethnic diversity um, is associated with conflict both in rich countries and in other and poor countries, middle-income countries. We all know about um, wars that have been caused by ethnic conflict. It's you know, just a routine finding, horrifyingly, of international politics and domestic politics. But I'm saying something beyond that. I'm saying 
that basically the, the, the fact that migrants carry cultural attitudes from the home country to the new and make the places they come from a lot like the places they left means that if you're an effective altruist, if you're a long-termist, um, you should be thinking about the long-run effects of your migration policy. Um, past is prologue, um, at least past is at least half of the prologue. And so um, migration policies that focus on migrate, having migrants come from countries that are more successful than your own is a good idea. That's why I kick off the book with saying that poor and middle-income countries should really consider a, pro a long-run pro-Chinese immigration policy. Gotcha. So speaking of the, of the long-term consequences, one, one of the things you point out that's really interesting is just how dependent the world really is on the innovation of really just seven uh, major innovating countries. Um, and you say that um, because these countries are so important, there's a really strong case to be made for being extra careful about immigrating mm -hmm. a lot of people with attitudes who might disrupt that, uh, that climate um, in the long run. Um, but I wonder if given fertility rates in these nations, whether we pretty much have to just find some way to make substantial immigration work. Um, otherwise, these places will depopulate and it'll be bad anyway. Ah, this is an interesting point worth note, worth thinking about, right? So um, so there are seven countries, I call them the I-7, that are the most innovative seven countries in the world. Um, they tend to create the, they create the vast majority of patentable ideas of um, scientific research. They do the vast majority of the world's R&D. And so I argue for a kind of um, conservatism, a sort of um, cautiousness about um, choosing migration policies that would really hurt uh, the institutional quality there. So, but you're right, if they shrink enough, that's a huge cost to the world, but that at least means we need to think through that trade-off. I'm open to the idea that, um, that basically uh, taking some risks with the most innovative countries in order to keep their populations from going to zero is a risk worth taking, um, but quantifying that risk is well worth thinking about. And so really what I wanna do here is start a debate by getting people to realize there's a huge globally important factor that is that the whole world should be thinking about when it comes to migration policy to the rich countries. And if we lose these um, geese that are laying golden eggs for the whole planet, um, that'd be a really uh, real loss for everyone. So the whole world has an interest in America's migration policy. The whole world has an interest in Japanese migration policy. And um, changing that debate helps us get away from these, I think, sterile debates. Um, in, you know, they, they serve their purpose about whether the, you know, our pre-existing pre Americans helped or hurt by low-skilled migration to the U.S. That's an issue that's been debated a lot. I tend to think they're not hurt very much in the short run at all. Um, but the whole world will lose if the I-7 lose substantially their level of innovation. Gotcha. So let's focus in on America specifically for a second. So um, again, uh, they're one of the seven most innovating nations. Probably they're either first or second, depending on how you measure it. Um, and yet um, America is you know, it's a nation of immigrants. It's an extremely diverse place. Um, when you, when people have tried to measure the contribution to American innovation from various groups, a lot of it comes from immigrants either directly yeah, or, exactly. or indirectly through spillover effects. Um, is America just a huge outlier here or does that push against your theory at all? 
America's been a huge outlier in a lot of ways, right? So in the old days, for instance, uh, a lot of progressives used to point out that they their story was you couldn't compare America to Europe when it comes to, say, tax policy or this or that policy. You can't say, oh, America has a smaller welfare state and they're richer, so maybe the smaller welfare state's causing it. They just pointed out, they just would say, America's just kind of exogenously richer. We're not going to explain why, but it just seems like it's just exogenously richer. And so America is a big outlier. Um, but keep in mind, um, I mean, I'll I'll stick to a quote that I have from Barack Obama, where he says, um, he, I close this with the book with this, which he says something to the effect of, um, you know, America's running this experiment in um, an ethnically diverse um, democracy, and we don't really know if that's going to work. So he treated our experiment as new. And part of the reason he's right to treat that as new is because until about the 1960s, America was a multi-ethnic democracy on paper only, right? We know that America was unwelcoming, that the American institutions uh, were unwelcoming to widespread uh, political participation from non-whites, right? And so to treat America as a big outlier institutionally when it basically governed itself um, with the electorate of Western Europe for the first two centuries. And for about 60 years now, we've been making halting steps toward a true multi-ethnic democracy means that we do not have a century of multi-ethnic democracy success to look back on and say, oh yeah, this will just work just fine. Um, social conflict between um, ethnically diverse groups, including that backlash effect are very real and probably are um, uh, putting some sand in the gears of our institutional quality. Gotcha. Um, so how, how well do you think that experiment is, is going more recently? Do you think that you know, it was kind of inevitable that um, with being in, moving so far in the direction of kind of the Barack Obama ideal of progress was, it was inevitable that that was going to cause institutional challenges. And now we have to, to, to back off and um, maybe insulate our institutions in some way from, um, from diversity or from the democratic process. What, what stance would you take um, kind of provisionally? I mean, I think cultural, when it comes to cultural questions, um, nothing is necessarily so. Um, I do think the culture is a lot of uh, focal points, as we, as we call them in game theory, where there's just multiple equilibria. And if we, that um, it's poorly understood how cultures choose one equilibrium rather than another, whether it's about fashion or vastly more important things like politics or economic and cultural norms. Um, but I, I do think the risk of bad outcomes has grown. So, and part of the reason is because of this uh, white fragility backlash, which is institution weakening. And um, I think that deserves real attention, you know, that deserves real attention as a cost of, a, uh, of America's migration policy over the last 60 years. Gotcha. Um, so maybe, maybe thinking back um, to, to some of the, 90s era um, kind of conceptions of what what defines America. Um, do you think 
do you, how true do you think it is um, this idea of the melting pot and and that maybe at some point um, assimilation was uniquely good in America in a, in a way that it wasn't in other countries? Um, do you think that that was ever true? And and if so, is is that becoming less true over time? Um, well, you know, I think the 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 attitude persistence literature, um, you know, which Alberto Alessina was a key figure in, the late Alberto Alessina. Um, this shows that basically a lot of the melting pot stuff was never happening that much in the first place. It's just that the mere fact that most Americans lost the, you know, they they sort of set aside um, some of their detectors for noticing the difference between, say, Italians and Germans and English people and Swedes. The fact that a lot of those detectors faded away in cultural importance does not mean that Swedish Americans became the same as Italian Americans. They're still statistically detectable. They're still statistically discernible from each other. So A, a lot of that melting pot was um, a metaphor that was used for um, European American integration, which happened, at, fortunately, it did not lead to large levels of ethnic conflict, right? Ultimately, in the 19th century, the Know Nothing Party was a, you know, in part anti-German, anti-Irish, so going after my ancestors. Um, and uh, that sort of conflict has faded um, among, those, among, among those groups. But the melting pot, A, the melting pot, we can tell from this attitude persistence literature, maybe worked halfway. But also, not just that it worked halfway, it's that it was, I think, a two-way street. And this is something where I really think further research is needed, where a lot of what has happened, uh, probably, when, when, when it turns out, we, we say migrants have become a lot like other Americans, it may be that the Americans became a lot like the migrants, right? I call this the spaghetti theory of cultural change, right? If you were a fancy statistician, you said, I'm going to check and see whether Italian Americans assimilated to becoming more like other Americans. And here's my statistical test. I'm going to check and see what foods they eat. And if you checked and see, check the foods that Italian Americans and other Americans ate, you'd, you'd make a list. You'd say like pizza and hamburgers and spaghetti. And you'd say, yeah, kind of everybody eats pizza and hamburgers and spaghetti. So I guess the Italians assimilated. But of course, part of what happens is that the Italians assimilated us. Italian Americans assimilated other Americans. So meeting in the middle is part of assimilation. Um, there's this uh, belief that a lot of libertarian open borders optimists have that migrants will move to a new country and overwhelmingly move in the direction, move their norms in the direction of the country they move to. And they never really consider the possibility that the people who were there originally will move a bit in the direction of the migrants. But in, it's probable that a lot of life is a two-way street. Norms are negotiated. And I would love to see formal statistical tests of this. There are ways one could do it. Uh, but spaghetti theory is, uh, I think, an important way of explaining why it is that, say, attitudes um, converge about half the way in the ways we can statistically detect. But what's the other half? A lot of the other half is, hey, a lot of Swedes moved to America. Swedes are really trusting. We became more like the Swedes. Thank goodness. I'm not Swedish, so but yeah. I think I get some of the benefit of their high trust attitudes, and it's probably affected me and my um, and other people I've known. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, it's it's kind of hard to reconcile uh, that image of assimilation moving only one way. If you 
spend any time in Los Angeles, for example. I mean, the, a lot of the billboards are in Spanish. Um, the food that people eat is, is very different, um, whether they're uh, originally, you know, from Latin America or exactly. native born American. Fantastic, they, right? It's great. It's, uh, yeah, um, right. And, and um, so it seems still though- um, Migrants are assimilating us to some degree and many of these features are fantastic, right? And we should check to yeah. see if all of them are fantastic. Yeah, um, I, I guess even if there's a lot of kind of two-way um, assimilation going on, that still seems sort of broadly consistent with the idea of the melting pot. Um, yeah. Because, I mean, a melting pot kind of implies that everything is melding together and meeting halfway. Yes. Uh, um, the, the evidence you provide in your book, uh, looking at um, the persistence of cultural attitudes based on where people originally migrated from in America is... Um, you know, it's a within, um, it's comparing different counties that have um, differing amounts of various ethnic groups. Um, but it's, it's still not really getting at uh, kind of, you, it's hard to do a cross country comparison and, and see like how much more kind of two way assimilation is going on in America than other places. Do you, do you have maybe at least some sense whether, whether America was was doing a lot more of that. And maybe that's why they were able to bring in people without a ton of explicit conflict relative to other places. I mean, this is a case where I don't have econometrics to back this up, but I will say that just the, the experience of many migrants to the US that they felt like America was welcoming to them and they felt like they could, if they assimilated to a moderate degree, they would be treated as part of the group to a moderate degree. If that's happening for say half of the migrants, that's huge. And it seems as though the, the norms of people who are careful non-statistical observers is that America was just better at this, right? It's a, I think it's a side effect of American openness, right? I, th I think that's a lot of what it is, that Americans um, historically had a relatively high degree of openness. Um, if I wanted to point to one study that is cons quite consistent with that openness story, um, it's actually one of the, an unconventional deep roots paper um, the Financial Times discussed it years ago uh, about Swedes who migrated to the U.S. It turns out that the, the Swedes who migrated to the U.S. Um, tended to have uh, more unusual names. And so this is one of our statistical indicators of individualism and openness to trying new things. And um, so the Swedes who stayed behind were different statistically than the Swedes who left. And this is one argument for why Swedes um, chose the welfare state is because a lot of the individualists who would tend to be high openness uh, left. So if that, I don't wanna say that this is conclusive proof um, that uh, all migrants to the US, uh, at least all voluntary migrants were in this, had the same bundle of traits, but it's at least suggestive. Um, I think Americans have had this, you know, fortunately uh, a little bit higher openness to um, treating newcomers well than, than a lot of other countries in the world. But you know what's important for my story uh, is not just this the diversity question I see as a, as a smaller thing, and I emphasize that. So um, diverse, the, the conflict created by diversity. I think the more important question is um, if a lot of folks move to your country who support bad policies, and if those attitudes are relatively persistent, then things are probably going to get worse. And um, this is why I, I kick off chapter one with the story about Argentina, right? Um, Argentine migrants, um, according to mainstream histories of Argentina, um, were disproportionately folks who were interested in 
trade union, strong trade union, socialism, political radicalism, anarchism, which was a left-wing movement in that time. And, uh, you know, within a couple of decades, you had first and second generation migrants who were pushing hard for um, progressive politics and not just like mild welfare state stuff, just full on, you know, direct action. And uh, this is part of what landed us in the end with the don't cry for me, Argentina. It's a complicated history. and I'm just giving a potted version of it. But mainstream Argentine history says they imported uh, attitudes by bringing in new workers who carried those attitudes with them. Um, traditional progressive historians are proud of that. I think those of us who care about institutional quality and prosperity can learn from those lessons, even if we draw different policy lessons than they did. Gotcha. Do you think there are any meaningful differences between legal and illegal immigration with respect to assimilation and the attitudes that migrants bring with them? Oh, um, you know, if if one wanted to, if I wanted to just speculate without having uh, tested it, it would be that illegal immigrants are probably uh, more likely to want to assimilate, right? Um, because your your goal is to stay below the radar so that you're not um, likely to draw the attention of authorities, right? So that would be my uh, uninformed hunch without having econometric data that I can put to this. Yeah, I would suspect that illegal immigrants are probably more interested in assimilating um, to, to the condition on planning to stick around, right? Condition on expected long-term duration. If, if some folks are overstaying their visas or coming over to work um, for a few years to make money and then go back, um, I'd say that, you know, one would expect those folks to be less interested in assimilating, right? And maybe they would teach their kids to be less interested because they'd be thinking, well, I'm going to raise my kids back home. And then we, you know, I want to teach my kids in the cultural norms of where they're going to live. So I think the bigger distinction um, is long-term versus short-term, but um, because people are longer term, they're they're probably going to push in that direction. But I'm really interested in the second and third generation, right? Because um, I think of this as a book about the long run, not about the short run. Um, and um, so if we're thinking about long run immigration, um, I, I would expect um, undocumented or, as they say in Europe, irregular migrants to be uh, more interested in assimilating. Yeah. Cool. Um, so I'd like to ask a few questions that um, more explicitly tie in this discussion to your previous books. Sure. Um, I'll start with this question. On balance, who is more right about immigration, voters or elites? Oh, um, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think that uh, if we look at our political elites, I think of our political elites as mostly trying to imitate. They're trying to read the views of what they think the voters really want. And I think what elite voters hold very confused views on immigration. You know, people on the right are happy to show you polls saying people want uh, less migration across many rich countries, and especially in the US where I see more data. Um, but it also appears strongly that those same voters, um, they want lower immigration as long as there are no bad headlines that will make them feel uncomfortable in any way, right? So I think politicians have to um, weigh not just what voters say they want, but whether voters will want the consequences of the thing they say they want. So 
you can find many voters saying like, oh, Americans should tighten the border. Americans should have lower rates of immigration. Okay, well, are you actually in favor of like having really a dramatically militarized border that hurts a lot of people? Are you really in favor of deporting large numbers of people who've been here 5, 10, 20 years? And all of a sudden, like, you know, voters are like, no, 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 I didn't mean that. So polls, um, you know, politicians have to be aggregators. And in that respect, they have to think through the consequences of what will happen if they give the voters what they say they want. Now, on the broader question of non-political elites, I do think that um, elites overall are um, who aren't political are too optimistic about the costs of ethnic diversity uh, because they're living in bubbles where they can screen out the costs and just get only the benefits. Um, you know, they're living in affluent neighborhoods where um, poorer and lower skilled first generation migrants have to drive uh, half an hour, 45 minutes, more than an hour just to get there. So they're getting all of what they think in their world are the benefits of diversity, which is like a lot of ethnic food and uh, people to take care of their homes and um, engage in what they think of as menial, low-skilled labor, which is often quite grueling. And they don't have to pay the costs. It's like, it's a, that's, that's over in somebody else's neighborhood. Um, those are somebody else's school districts. I don't have to think about that. So I think that's a that's a big problem, um, right? There's the salience element uh, of the costs of ethnic diversity that even if they're not overwhelming, as I emphasize, um, there's something still that elites do not see. They live in a filtered world. Um, and so they screen out the benefits and they screen out the costs and get the benefits. So th their views are unfortunately biased, I think. They do better to actually read academic literature, so. That makes sense. I think the the core question I was kind of wrestling back and forth with in my mind is um, how would 10% less democracy like affect these questions? It seems yeah. like on the one hand, um, you know, a lot of elites um, who would presumably have more power in a 10% less democracy society, they are kind of out of touch uh, from some of these, these yeah, downsides like, yeah. that, they, that they don't uh -huh. internalize. But on the other hand, um, if you insulate um, your well-functioning institutions from the will of the people, then that could potentially reduce a lot of the biggest costs that you point to in your book, where um, the added, like the populist attitudes of the people, the anti-institutional attitudes, they're going to have less influence if you insulate them more full, if you insulate institutions more fully from democracy. Um, so, um... I talk a little about this in 10%. Uh, the European Union it, you know, had a, this uh, major migration crisis in 2015, some of which involved uh, refugees. And uh, the Europeans, Western Europeans saw for the first time just large numbers of people you know, uh, coming across often in boats and often large numbers walking through um, mountain passes to get to uh, countries where they could claim asylum, right? And for the first couple of months, uh, polled well with be, treating the migrants well, polled very well with the voters. And then after about six months, it started polling really negatively with the average European voter. So if I thought that the out of touch elites could just ignore what the masses wanted, um, I would expect that, well, migration would have just continued. But once the, once the European politicians saw what voters wanted, they created like, they actually created an effective border control agency that, uh, reduce uh, irregular flows of migrants by 90%, right? 
and it stayed that way for years. So they created Frontex, which had been sort of an, embry an embryonic state beforehand. They staffed it up dramatically. Um, European leaders, EU leaders started holding uh, press conferences, basically celebrating how effectively they were protecting the border. I tend to think that European elites created a, a, border, a border control policy that Donald Trump could have only dreamed of. But because European elites um, you know, speak in the idiom of Brussels, they speak in this sort of neutral technocratic way that doesn't have the rage of a Donald Trump, they accomplished what Donald Trump wanted without actually without the friction. Exactly. So, like um, the populist parties, I, I mean, of course, the populist parties hold many very bad views, but they got many things that were on their wish list, and they won't they won't celebrate it because the people who accomplished the goals didn't talk the way they want them to on Twitter. So European elites, resp both responsive to voters and effective at giving the voters what they want. Um, we've, um, so this is something that I think is, um, I'm one of the few people in the world interested in, in, in talking about this to people because the right doesn't want to give Brussels credit for into implementing largely a right-wing policy. And the left doesn't want to say, oh, we did something really right-wing. Look at how good we are at this. Gotcha. So mood affiliation aside, you basically, um, have a situation where if you have uh, too much democracy, too much populism, then you can't even effectively implement the, the parts of the maybe, um, you know, immigration worldview that is correct. Um, and and um, by giving just a little bit less power to the people there, you're allowing technocrats to be just a little bit more effective at doing the things that actually maybe kind of make sense on the margin. Um, yeah, I think that's a that's a fair summary as I as I understood it. Yes, yeah. The um, technocrats can implement things without giving them the without giving the voters the mood affiliation they crave. You could say that's a downside of technocracy, right? Um, voters crave mood affiliation. Um, they they crave seeing the memes um, that they that they've you know that they love. But uh, maybe they should just take their policy win, a ninety percent policy win, and uh, move on to the next issue to get mad about. Gotcha. Um, so your other book in this Singapore trilogy is The Hive Mind. Um, yes. And there you emphasize national IQ as distinct from the impact of culture. Yes. How are the two things related in your view? Well, you know, I would actually, um, let me tweak that a little bit. I tend to think of my book as describing what a high IQ culture looks like. What a culture with high cognitive test scores, high cognitive test scores tends to look like. Um, you know, um, Intelligence tests tend to predict uh, individual levels of trust, trustingness and trustworthiness, and they tend to predict uh, higher levels of group cooperation in an important cooperation game called the Repeated Prisoner's Dilemma. And when you think about what high trust cultures are like, well, they're distinct from lower trust cultures, right? And I think it's not that IQ is the only thing that um, is an important causal factor here, but it, it certainly predicts it, and it certainly has a, a higher effect than many other traits people try to look at. So I tend to think of um, hive mind. So, you know, both books are, are in a way doing what economists call looking under the lamppost for your keys, even if your keys are somewhere else because the light's better under the lamppost. Um, so I hive mind is my short to medium run book and uh, culture transplant is my medium to long run book. With IQ, you, you can say a lot from, economic theory and experimental research 
about where IQ takes you, it's a lot harder to say where IQ comes from. There just hasn't been enough research that I find to be high enough quality to be confident about that. Um, so I can be pretty confident about forward causation, a little iffier on reverse on how much reverse causation is going on. This is the kind of the way monetary policy works, right? I can say like, don't do this monetary policy, do that monetary policy. And then you ask me, well, why do some countries have different monetary policies than others? And I'm like, I don't know. I just want to tell you what to do. I don't, I don't know whether you're going to listen to me or not. Um, so yeah, um, I tend to think that uh, culture transplant, uh, you know, these cultural traits are probably are certainly going to correlate with IQ to some degree. It's going to be far, far, far from perfect. Um, but what I can say about culture is because because this intergenerational persistence has been so well documented, I can say something that's much more relevant to migration policy. I, I Hive Mind isn't built for that. That's just not a book that lets me uh, address those questions in a credible way. So, so yeah, Hive Mind is more about forward causation and the, the pre precise channels of forward causation. Why is it that higher IQ people are more patient or better at saving or better cooperation? Um, this is a book that says, if you want to get trusting people, I know how to do it. Bring in a lot of people from Sweden. Gotcha. So um, Brian Kaplan had a, a big review kind of, and one thing that made him really upset is basically that you just didn't throw IQ into the regressions. And um, my reading of your response to that was that, well, we can't just throw IQ into the regression because quite plausibly culture is actually causing IQ to, to develop it, it, you know, in the long run. Exactly. Is that is that an I mean, accurate he, that's assessment? That's even something that his own story from his comic book would suggest, right? So, um, uh, if I think of culture as um, not quite an ultimate cause, but a long run cause, if I think culture is a long run cause and IQ as one of multiple medium run causes of prosperity, one of the rules of good statistics is that you don't control for medium run causes if you're trying to learn about long run causes, right? If you're trying to guess how fast, if you're trying to understand what makes a car go faster, um, you, uh, if you're trying to predict, uh, predict, find out what makes a car go faster, um, you could say, well, I want to look at how powerful the engine is. And somebody else would say, well, why would you want to look at how powerful the engine is when you can just look at how fast the wheels turn? If you look at how fast the wheels turn, that'll tell you how fast the car goes. And it would be a statistical mistake to control for wheel speed if you're trying to find out whether an engine is important for making a car go faster. So I think that's part of why, that's why statistically it's a mistake to uh, control for IQ when you're trying to find out whether these deep roots or long run cultural factors matter. Uh, well, well-known fact in multivariate regression is you don't control for mediators. Uh, that's the jargony version of what I just said. Yeah, controlling for mediators is a mistake and you uh, shouldn't make that mistake. So it's uh, unfortunate to see Kaplan making sort of a well-known mistake in that essay. He can always correct it, I guess. Uh, but uh, yeah, you don't control for mediators. Gotcha. Um, and so if, if culture is its own thing, distinct from genetics in, in some sense, um, is it, how much do you think adoptive culture um, should matter. So for instance, if you look at New Zealand, many more people identify as Maori than is likely to actually be the case biologically. Um, yeah. But maybe identifying with an ethnicity is important and meaningful in and of itself. 
That's a great question that is really outside the scope of my book. And um, I mean, I'm adopted myself and uh, my parents adopted me at six weeks. Um, and I know that changed my life in many ways. Um, I'm the thing I most, uh, the thing I was just thinking about the other day, one of the things I'm most sure of that, about how adoption affected me is it's the reason I drive pickup trucks. My dad was a pipe fitter, which is a you know industrial construction worker. And uh, he always drove big pickup trucks. And so I drive big pickup truck. I'm sure that as a college professor, there's no way I would have done that, right? So um, yeah, this question of how much adoption matters is, uh, and how much that, that long run experience of being put a new, into a new environment matters is a great question. The normal result from behavioral genetics, as you know, from adoption and twin studies, is that on most things, adoption doesn't matter much in the long run. Being adopted into a smart family doesn't seem to make you that much smarter in the long run, uh, for instance. Um, one place it does matter is education, though. Um, it turns out that the, adopt, the effect on adoption of your education level, like being adopted into a high education versus a low education family, has a moderate correlation. Usually, I think people would say 0.3 with your adult level of education. Um, so to that, and we know that culture um, gets transmitted through education. Uh, most famously, the, the best evidence is that cultural attitudes, um, not political attitudes, but cultural attitudes towards social tolerance, for instance, seem to be transmitted through education. Like the one thing that seems to, you can say like, you know, does college make students more left-wing? Not on economics but it probably does make them more left-wing in terms of social tolerance and cosmopolitanism, which is a form of um, adoption effect, an adoption effect I totally welcome. So um, you can call those soft effects. I mean, if one wanted to call those soft effects, I'd say, okay, fine. Uh, but a lot of those things can add up and matter for a lot of people over time. Again, it's not the area of my expertise, but uh, modern behavioral genetics, and indeed as summed up by Kaplan's very good book, um, Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids, a uh, good place to learn about how adoption, how basically being adopted into a certain family affects a few things, but not as many as you think. So it's interesting you mentioned um, kind of the uh, adoptive effect of education, the nurturing effect, because um, I actually thought about that in relation to one of the most interesting facts you mentioned uh, in passing in your book. So you note that apparently, at least according to the one study that really closely looked at this, um, mothers pass on much more of their cultural heritage than their fathers. Yeah. And I believe that's also true uh, in the education literature that mother's education is much more closely related to child education yeah. than, than mm -hmm. fathers. Um, uh, I mean, it seems like both of those things suggest that there's, there's some sort of uh, exactly. non-genetic effect there that matters. Exactly. There's, uh, so yeah, there's things that we think of as the softer side of life um, might be transmitted, especially through our mothers, at least for the average person, right? And do those things matter a lot? Yeah. Um, uh, it's hard to, without further information, it's hard to say what, what counts as a lot, right? Um, but the that one study that looked at uh, the effects on trust of your mother versus your father's level of trust, uh, or the ancestral level of trust, that was really one of these striking things where you're like, I hope an enterprising grad student goes and does like five studies of this with seven different countries, because it's not something where you need new data. The data are already sitting there in these data sets. So, and someone who did this, um, who just pressed a button and did it for 20 countries, 
made that a project, um, that'd be a, certainly publishable in a good journal. So. Um, maybe to just try and poke holes in it just a little bit. Um, I think I think one thing I've heard economists say is that well, of course, you know, mothers have more influence than fathers just because. I mean, it's just because the father is um, much less likely to be around at all. Mm -hmm. um, is that what's going? Is that the same thing that could that plausibly be going on in in this other study, or or do they have you know pretty uniform involvement uh, from both? Um, no, I don't. This is something where I don't. Uh, there's no detail that lets you know this. These folks are using uh, very likely world value survey measures and something like the general social survey, perhaps Eurobarometer, something like that. And uh, so the detail level just probably isn't going to be high enough for this. I mean, I'm glad to be wrong. The USGSS asks a lot of questions, but then you're still just relying on survey responses, which are always a noisy indicator, right? Um, it is worth noting, though, that when you, if you're using noisy indicators and you get a small effect, that's a sign that, not for sure, but probably the true effect is bigger, not smaller. A lot of people think that if your measure is noisy and you find something, oh, it's just a fluke. Uh, it's not impossible, but best guess is if you get a small effect with a crummy statistical proxy, you get a bigger effect with a better one. That's known as the errors and variables finding. It seems like that might also might be another reason um, why you would never ever want to control for IQ against these cultural measures because IQ is just measured much more precisely than a lot of cultural things that, that we exactly. care about, right? Exactly. That's uh, yeah. It's not as important as the mediator channel that I suggested before, but you're right. When you're you have a choice between the thing that's measured better and the thing that's measured worse. Uh, the thing that's measured better is just going to win naturally, even if it's intrinsically less important. Um, even if you knew it was, even if hypothetically you knew there was cause, causally less important. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we're always using mediocre proxies. I mean, as, as a monetary economist myself, by training, that's, you know, that with money, right? So all of our measures of money are terrible and somehow we can still say something useful. Yeah, I, I was, I was thinking about this when, um, you know, you find that um, there's very strong positive effects of um, bringing in immigrants with Chinese heritage, and um, and you find actually negative effects for Protestantism, despite a lot of things um, in kind of kind of the more general Max historical. Faber, right? I mean, he's a smart guy. Yeah, right. Yeah, and and I just wonder whether um, I mean. Maybe the Chinese indicator is just a much better measure of culture. And if you had a really good distinguisher between like true like Protestantism, like as as opposed to um, you know, a, a lot of different things. I feel like I, I get the sense that there's a lot more cross-migration throughout all of the Protestant countries that kind of mixes things in a way that makes it hard to really identify what Protestantism might be doing. I'm open to that possibility. It might just be that, you know. The, the, the particular study that I know of that you know, I mentioned in the, in the introduction that discusses this, I mean, it's looking at 1960 to uh, 1996 at that point. I, I don't think updating the numbers would change that noticeably. But in that period, Protestantism was a different thing than it was when Max Weber was writing. And certainly a different uh, Protestantism was a different thing than the period he was writing about, right? The, when he's thinking about the 16 and 1700s. So what we call Protestantism is a different creature than today than it was when Weber wrote and in turn it's different from the period Weber was writing about. Makes sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'd like to close with just uh, one or two more questions. 
Um, you alluded to this previously um, a little bit, but what did growing up in the LDS church teach you about the importance and persistence of culture? Oh, yes. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So my Mormon ancestors were um, uh, came to Utah and at some point Brigham Young told uh, most of them, I'm told, to, to go to Wyoming, actually. So my ancestors are from Wyoming. And, uh, you know, Mormons, Mormons brought um, a lot of English Northeastern culture to what we now call Utah. So when one is doing genetic studies and one, one wants to learn what, um, you know, say founding era Americans were like, one would want to actually do some studies in Utah, right? Because a lot of uh, English folks moved. Um, Joseph Smith and all his family were English. Um, I believe it's know, still the most English state in the nation, actually. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not certain of that, but I'm open to that because I know it's between them and basically the far Northeast, right? Maine, um, uh, Upper New England. Um, so, A, you've got that. And um, you've got the English, you've got the Swedes, you've got the Welsh, which is where I am, I'm Jones. And uh, it does really seem like they imported the cultures of their homelands to a sizable extent. Um, out to Utah. So, you know, um, I would I would not be surprised if one could statistically distinguish distinguish um, you know, fifth generation English Mormons from in, fifth generation Swedish Mormons just statistically. But that at the same time, Mormon culture is its own seems to be its own independent force even though it's changed a lot. I you know, Mormonism plays I can use it to make both points, right? It's, it it captures this diversity of cultural persistence and change. I mean, Mormons used to be a theocratic, polygamous, communist cult, essentially, right, in the mountains. And they became pro-democracy, um, pro-monogamy, and pro-capitalism. I mean, all it took was one invasion by the United States government, and they just completely changed their story, right? So um, that's a reminder that a culture can change in what all of us would think are important ways and yet still keep other attitude, other traits of cultural persistence that are there for anyone to see. So it's it does capture, as I mentioned to someone on Twitter a couple of months ago, I could have called my book um, The 40% uh, Culture Transplant, and that would have been, uh, that would have captured a lot of my story, right? Uh, there's a lot of both and when it comes to persistence and change. And my Mormon ancestors carry a lot of those, um, the they obviously are carrying the traits of their original countries, and then they're able to, through the repeated uh, environment of an LDS ward, an LDS congregation, they're able to, by meeting so regularly and spending a few hours a week with the same folks, week after week, year after year, they're conveying the culture of Mormonism and transmitting it kind of persistently from generation to generation. It's a really effective culture. I think Mormons are, uh, they've, they've created something fantastic that the world should study more. I've been lucky to work for, uh, an LDS politician, Orrin Hatch, um, and uh, yeah, they're they're a sign of how a culture can be transplanted, and they give evidence that some of this really is just preaching norms, uh, implementing them, practicing them on a regular basis. Don't Mormons also exemplify this kind of two-way street of assimilation because they really actively proselytize, and uh -huh. so maybe a lot of this you know, you have this persistence on the one hand, because, um, I mean, there are a lot of selection mechanisms that kind of filter who is going to join the church and who's going to stay in the church. 
Um, and so that creates persistence. But at the same time, you do have a lot of people flowing in all the time, and that's naturally going to change the culture of the church. Yeah. So, um, you know, my uh, the economics of religion literature um, has uh, thought, thought through this a lot. Right. And if you're going to be a religion that, that is successful, according to Starkey and Iannacone, uh, they say you have to stay in medium tension with the society around you. So the Mormons have had to learn to adapt all the time. And because a lot of it is top down, uh, the leaders have to keep an eye out um, on cultural changes that they don't want to get you know, too far away from. Right They're, I mean, in a way, their goal is always to stay about a generation and a half behind the times, probably. And um, so, A, the leaders are steering to the extent they can the culture of the faith so that it doesn't get too out of touch with the surrounding society. On the question of whether their acculturation is changing the people who join, that's tougher, right? I mean, obviously, in in, in outward ways, it, they're going to change, but there's so much selection going on, right? This is, you know, one of the standard Scott Alexander points, which is that you know, in in so many areas, like selection must be driving everything. So the people who are joining Mormonism are the people who think, yeah, I can hack it. I can give up smoking. I can give ten percent of my money to these folks. I can go to church every Sunday right? Uh, Mormons lose the vast majority of their converts within a year. And so that's all got to be selection right there, 80% just selection. Um, so uh, so they are basically having a tough filter is one of the ways to make sure that you get people who are going to stick to your cultural norms. So I hope that we uh, encourage the Mormons to keep their tough cultural filter so they can continue to have their fantastic cultural contribution to the world. Gotcha. Um, so uh, my last question, looking at George Mason economics more generally, uh, quite a few of the professors have strong ties to religious tradition of some kind. Um, usually they're not practicing themselves, but within one or two generations, there's a pretty clear, significant link in some of the most influential people that come to mind. Uh, what influence do you think that what, what influence do you think that has on department culture and the ideas that come out of it? Um, I do think it means that we want to talk to people, right? It means we want to share our message with folks. I think uh, George Mason University economists have a proselyting and even prophetic bent that a lot of academic economists lack, right? A lot of academic economists are happy to toil away at their journal articles, get them published, get um, accolades from their elite peers. And those are great things to do. I've been happy to have some success there myself. But what GMU professors want to do, and it may be related to, you know, their ancestral exposure to, to um, strong religious traditions, uh, is that we really want to explain things to others, um, both in and outside the profession, and bring them around to our views. So the need to persuade, the need to sort of sincerely have people look at your stuff and say, oh yeah, I'm actually going to come around to your point of view. That seems to be a, a, a passion that uh, many of us share. And again, I wish more academic economists had it, uh, because academic econ has so much to bring to the world. And um, I hope we can find ways to get more of the great ideas of economics, both those that are GMU friendly and those that are not shared with the world as a whole. I wonder if that's related at all to just the number of um, Jewish Nobel Prize winners there are. Um, because like everyone kind of fixates, I think, on the the high average IQ of, of, Jew, of Jews, but 
um, it seems to me like a really important factor in winning a Nobel Prize is just really pounding home again and again uh, a really important idea and doing everything you possibly can to thoroughly convince um, you know the entire community of it. Um, is is that related at all, or, or you don't think so? I would. This is something that I don't know enough about to say because I don't think of. Um, I don't. Think you don't think modern, of it as the same evangelism. Uh, yeah, it's not right? quite the you, same as evangelism, and I actually don't. I don't think of, um, say, twentieth century Judaism as having this strong prophetic bent as much as Judaism inheriting a historic prophetic bent, right? So, um, I mean, in so yeah, that's something where I'm I'm open to learning more about that, but I probably have to say I don't know if that's true at all. So, and of course, uh, I mean, if you have really deep roots. Um, and they're well preserved. It, it could be that you're tapping into something that goes back, you know, to a time when Judaism was actually um, maybe more evangelical in some ways. I, a strongly I don't know prophetic either, religion, but... right? So, I mean, I think that uh, the Book of Isaiah still deserves to rise in status, right? Uh, just mm -hmm. a fantastic book, not just because it has so much of an influence on Joseph Smith, um, but because it just has great messages of what a moral society looks like and what morality has to wrestle with. Um, you know, every culture that seriously wrestles with this, with uh, the with the prophetic message of the Old Testament, I think ends up coming away far the better for it. I wish we were in a culture where more or a greater portion of the American population were being exposed to the you know, prophetic voices, especially the Old Testament. And because, yeah, it would make our national discourse, it would elevate our national discourse in a really important way. Gerald Jones, thank you so much for joining me. It was uh, a wonderful opportunity to meet you. Again, thanks for having me.